Well, the prophecy of Isaiah, we have it before us in the next couple of weeks. We're going to, God willing, commence our daily readings entering this um, prophecy. And I don't know about you, although I do because I have been in environments where this has happened, often when we come to this time of the year and maybe we're a little pressed for time and it's a choice to do the readings, maybe Isaiah isn't our first choice, depending on what chapter it may be, because we're a little bit intimidated by it. It's the biggest of the prophecies and maybe the, the New Testament might be a little easier to, to read and get our heads around. And, and so we thought as a Bible class committee, let's put a series of nights on and, um, and see if we can maybe give us, ourselves a little confidence to venture in. The, the, and we'll talk about the purpose of the series later on. The question is, why consider Isaiah? I mean, we've got the New Testament. We can, we can choose that. Um, what is the benefit of the prophecy of Isaiah? Let's just go to Acts chapter 8 to start with. Acts chapter 8, well-known incident, verse 27. We have Philip who arises and went and he beheld a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority, and a Candace queen of Ethiopians who had the charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot reading of all things, Isaiah the prophet. And the spirit said to Philip, go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, how can I, except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he should come up and sit with him. And the place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this? Of himself? Or of some other man. What does Philip do in verse 35? Philip opened his mouth and began at that same scripture, Isaiah, and preached unto him Jesus. That was his chosen way, wasn't it? Here's Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch. There's the prophecy of Isaiah in the eunuch's hands, probably a scroll. And he preached Jesus from the prophecy of Isaiah. Isn't that powerful? That, that tells us that the prophecy of Isaiah can reveal the work of the Lord Jesus Christ to us. And one of our studies, or probably two of them, will, will focus particularly on that. Just go over with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24 and verse 13 commences with the story of the um, two disciples that were walking on the, um, towards the village of Emmaus. And as we see in verse 14, they're walking together, talking about the things that had happened. And Jesus himself drew near and was talking with them. And as they were communicating... Verse 19, Jesus says to them, What things had occurred? And they said unto him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him, and he be condemned to death, and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished 
which were early at the sepulchre. When they found not his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels which said he was alive. And so the narrative goes on and they're questioning and what had happened. And the Lord Jesus Christ, in verse 26, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Isn't that amazing? The Lord Jesus Christ, there's these disciples here. He didn't say, well, this is what I did here and this is what I did there. You've heard about the, the things that have occurred in my life. No, the Lord Jesus Christ went back to the law and the prophets to reveal himself to them. And isn't it amazing that it goes on to say, when they drew nigh to the village, whither they went, and he made as though he would have gone further, they constrained him and said, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and brake and gave to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, did not our heart burn within us? When did it burn within us? It burned within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scripture. So powerful was the message of the Lord Jesus Christ as he revealed the law and the prophets and undoubtedly he went to Isaiah that it burned within them the message that was contained there. Um, Luke chapter, um, sorry, not Luke chapter 24, um, Acts 28, Acts 28, just that final little thought here. Acts chapter 28, just going to focus here on verse 23 and 24. This is, of course, those that came to Paul to be taught by him. And it says there in verse 23, And when they had appointed him a day, there came many to him into his lodging, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets, from morning till evening. And some believed the things which were spoken and some believed not. And so we can see that, that Paul here was preaching the things concerning Jesus and the kingdom of God from the law and the prophets. And of course, as I reflected on that, I thought, well, yeah, in reality, if we focus on the New Testament, we don't actually learn an awful lot about the details of the kingdom. Most of the detail we find is actually in the Law and the Prophets, and, and you'll, we will find there's a, a fair bit of detail in the prophecy of Isaiah. It, it, also, there is a fair bit of detail about the Lord Jesus Christ throughout the book of Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah, and we're going to get an appreciation for that too. And it's just another interesting aspect that when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, one of the most complete scrolls was that of Isaiah itself, which stands as a testament to us, doesn't it, to the, the reliability of the word of God, the truthfulness of it. And we often turn to that as a, as a factor of the archaeology that supports the word of God. And so like the Lord Jesus Christ... And like the Apostle Paul and like Philip, we're going to delve back and go back and enter into the prophecy of Isaiah. Now, the, the book itself is 66 chapters. We have five nights, which means we've got to deal with about 13 chapters a night or something like that. So clearly we're not going to approach it in that way. We're not doing a detailed 
analysis of everything there. It just would not happen. Okay. What we're really wanting to do is enter on into this as maybe a little ecclesial project, a, a, a collaborative study over the coming couple of months as we read the prophecy of Isaiah together. My plan for these five nights is to, um, to have a look at some of the, the foundation ideas, give a little bit of an overview of the, the structure of the prophecy so that we've got a, a little bit of a template to work with, some little foundation ideas to build on. Study two, so next time we're going to focus on the prophecies relating to the Messiah. And we know how powerful that message is, that thread is, that it inspired Handel, didn't it, to write that, that wonderful um, oratorio of the Messiah. And then study three, we're going to look at what is revealed about the kingdom. Study four, we're going to focus on what it means to be a servant. And then the fifth study, we're going to look at some of the examples where Isaiah is quoted in the New Testament, where it refers back, and it's been suggested that Isaiah is probably one of the most oft-quoted sections of the Old Testament in the New Testament. And so it's helpful for us and what I think would be valuable for us is to maybe, as I've said down the bottom here, make these things a focus of our daily readings to, um, over the next couple of months, look at, look for the threads that we can see that occur in the book and colour things in to maybe help things stand out a little bit. And then in the second half of the year, as we work our way through the New Testament, when we come across a statement that might say, as he quoted from Isaiah, you know, go back to that section, link the two, the circumstance. How does it help us to understand what Isaiah was saying and what was actually happening in the New Testament? So it might be, as I say, a, a collaborative study that we can all engage in, maybe for the rest of this year. Okay, foundations. What do we know about Isaiah? His name means... Yah has saved. So it's not indifferent to the name Jesus or Joshua. In fact, it probably is a bit the other way around. It means saved of Yah because it's Isaiah. All right? But it has a connection. Okay? Yah has saved. He had a wife who is not named. She is called the prophetess in Isaiah chapter 8. And verse 3. He had two sons, Shia Jasher, who, whose name means a remnant will return. And Mahashal al Hashbaz, whose name means hasten to the booty, swift to the prey. And if we think about those two names, Mahashal al-Hashbaz, hasten to the booty, swift to the prey. It's talking about, isn't it, those nations that, that come against Israel, that are the, the, what God uses to execute his judgments upon them. And Shia Jashub, a remnant will return. So we know, don't we, through the, the record of the word of God, we have the benefit of hindsight that when God executed his judgments, the people always had the opportunity to come back. And we see that as a testament with the, Is the land of Israel back in the land today. And so... Just go to Isaiah chapter 8, because I think this is an important point. Not that, you know, particularly, it just helps us have an appreciation, I think. Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 18. I think it's probably just worth highlighting this. Um, it says, Behold, I, this is Isaiah speaking, of course. I and the children whom Yahweh hath given me, so this is Isaiah and his two boys, 
are for signs and for wonders in Israel from Yahweh of armies which dwelleth in Mount Zion. So he's, he's saying that there's something about Isaiah, salvation is of Yah, and these two boys where the prey will be taken but the remnant will return, these all are a sign for wonders in Israel, for those things that would be done in Israel. And it really, in a sense, summarises the prophecy of Isaiah. It summarises what happened because the, the overall theme of the Isaiah, prophecy of Isaiah is about the salvation of God. That's the overall theme. That's what it's all about. And cycling through it are judgments on the nation of Israel and other nations, which are all designed to bring them back to God. That's the focus. And so this, this, little, this family are here, this prophecy is delivered, and they are a sign for this work. It's also interesting, and you'll note in, in chapter 1 and verse 1, as Andrew read it for us, um, that it's described the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos. The son of Amos. Um, Isaiah is mentioned about 32 times in the Old Testament. 32 times, and 13 of those occasions, he is described as the son of Amos. So you, one would think, well, that's important. It's being repeated fairly often. We've got it there in verse 1 of chapter 1, and we've got it over the page in um, verse 1 of chapter 2, for example. It's always, in this instance, called Isaiah the son of Amos. Yet we don't know much about Amos. No other details. There is Jewish tradition which suggested that Amos was the brother of King Amaziah, who was the father of Uzziah, who was the first king reigning when Isaiah started to prophecy, prophesy. And so in that sense, it would make Isaiah the cousin of the king at the time. Okay, so that's in a natural sense, but we're not revealed that in the word of God. Okay, that's suggested from outside sources. Um, now, I'm not one for speculating too much, as you probably know, but um, Amos' name means strong. Okay? His name means strong. And just found it fascinating in Isaiah chapter 12 and verse 2, where Isaiah said, Behold, God is my salvation, which is a play on Isaiah's name itself. God is my, my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for Yah, Yahweh is my strength and my song. He has also become my salvation. So his natural father's name, Amos, means strong. And this message which he gave the people was a declaration that his father, God, is his strength. And I think we can maybe see that if we can align Isaiah, whose name mirrors that of Jesus, Yah is my salvation, that's what Jesus means, that God was Jesus' strength too, wasn't he? Okay, so we can see that maybe Isaiah is a little type of the Lord Jesus Christ here too in this whole prophecy and that this family are a sign for the work of God with his people. And I think that maybe is a little foundation that we can, we can draw on and maybe explore and think about as we, as we read this prophecy together. Okay. Um, so the focus of the prophecy of Isaiah, we're told in chapter 1 and verse 1, are the things which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Okay, 
So it's, that's the focus of the prophecy. Okay, the things which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now, many of the prophets had visions, didn't they, which they then recounted. Isaiah only actually had one small vision. So when it says it was a vision of Isaiah which he saw, it was almost the clarity of the words prevent, provided this picture in his mind uh, and he's sharing this to those that are before him. And so it's a, a clarity of vision, seeing what is before them. And we're also told quite specifically that it was given in the days of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Um, which I've got that on here. Yeah. Um, and you'll see them featured um, in the in, throughout the prophecy, and I've got where they are referred to. I think generally there where they occur in their time period. So it's a continuing message to these various kings. And I think probably naturally we tend to link Isaiah with Hezekiah and the work of Hezekiah, but his, his work spanned quite a period of time. Um, so we don't know much about what happened to Hezekiah when he ended his life. We enter into the realms of speculation to a certain extent on writings outside the word of God. Um, it is suggested possibly that he lived through to the reign of Manasseh, who um, persecuted um, the people that followed God. And... Um, it is suggested that in Hebrews chapter 11, I think it's verse 37, it makes reference to believers being sawn asunder and that the suggestion in many commentators is that was a reference to Isaiah who is reputed to have um, hidden in a tree or something and was, was, was cut down and he, was, he died in that way. Um, and that's um, from Jewish external writings. Um, so we can take that for what it's worth. Um, scripture itself doesn't directly relate to that, so I haven't got it for our consideration this evening. Okay. Um, so it's to do with Judah and Jerusalem. Um, let's just have a little um, look at the structure, maybe. Um, the first 12 chapters, in the main, focus on prophecies of judgment and hope for Judah and Jerusalem. And I think that's an important point for us to consider the way that God delivers his message through these prophets, that it's not all doom and gloom. And we saw that, didn't we, in the reading that we took this evening, that God focuses on, on the sins of the people and how he felt about that. But interwoven through that, there is that, that beautiful thread of hope, isn't there? When they responded in verse 19, if ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land and it goes on as, as we read together then that God would purge them again um, verse 25 and then that beautiful positive image and I will turn my hand upon thee and purely purge away thy dross and take away thy tin and I will restore thy judges at the first and thou shalt be called the city of righteousness the faithful city and so we have that interwoven don't we but, but not only that, because in chapter 1 we have that highlighted and then chapter 2 talks about Jerusalem again, but it's talking about Jerusalem in the future. So, yes, there's this message that God's highlighting to them and he wants them to change and then there's given this beautiful picture, this word picture of that day to come 
when Jerusalem would be established in the top, or the Lord's house would be established in the top of the mountains, exalted above the hills. Many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in the path, his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So we can see this little narrative taking place, this, this judgment, this assessment, what God wants from them, and that beautiful picture that couples with that, where God will bless them. And so we've got that, that highlighted throughout there. And of course other nations do come into play, like the Assyrians who God uses as a means of judging them. Okay, and then ultimately we have that, that beautiful picture of Emmanuel in, in um, chapter 9, which we will focus on um, in um, our talks next time. So that's... Um, why have I got two slides of the same here? <laughs> okay. Probably where I was copying and pasting and didn't get rid of one. It's just to keep Dave on the ball down the back there. Okay. Then we've got um, chapters 13 to 27. Um, this is a prophecy of judgment and hope for the nations. Now, the nations that are spoken of here, and we remember the context of Isaiah is to do with Judah and Jerusalem. So these are in particular the nations that have had something to do with Judah and Jerusalem. And the purpose of this section is it's highlighted. With, we can see it as we go through, as it deals with each of the nations. And there is judgment on them for what they have done. But a little message of hope is given as well. Because the hope is not just a Jewish hope at the end of the day, is it? we have that Gentile element come to the hope that we all have. Okay, and God's plan is for the whole earth, isn't it? Okay, and so for these nations, as we go through, we'll see that come through in our readings together. So look out for that. And, and, that, and sometimes I think this is where our difficulty comes when we do the daily readings with a prophecy like this, because we might sort of miss chapter 13 one night, and we go into chapter 14, uh, uh, what's this all about? Uh, and probably there is some benefit to say, well, we missed that. Maybe we should go back and read that and get the context, because when we follow through, and, and you'll see this, I think, and there's many, many threads that we will observe um, in our readings that we can follow through. Things that Isaiah is using, pictures that he is giving, and we're going to focus, just give a little example of that later on. Okay, so that's that section, 13 to 27, the nations are dealt with, um, and it goes into the whole earth and New Jerusalem at the bottom there. Chapters 28 to 39 um, um, continues on, um, prophecies of judgment, judgment and hope for the nations, um, Yep, dealing with Egypt and so on. And then it goes into the, the reign of Hezekiah, um, which is almost a historical narrative at that point. Um, and, and we'll see that too. And that leads in chapter 39, where they go into the captivity under the Babylonians. So we have almost a little, little dividing section there in, in, verse, in chapter 39 of Isaiah. And then chapter 40 picks up when they return from captivity and that wonderful message of hope of the servant to the returning captivity. Of course, focusing ultimately on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Israel has been in captivity under Babylon, come back into the land, and we can see that also in, in our own day age, looking forward to the kingdom of God. And so our own day and age almost mirrors 
that time where Israel came out of captivity in Babylon and the Lord Jesus Christ came the first time and he will come the second time. What's interesting to think about here at this point in time is that that period of captivity lasted some period of time. So how was Isaiah able to deliver that message to those that returned from the captivity? And I've got here at the bottom um, two or three quotes that it's worth considering at this point of time. How did this actually happen? How did this message get to those that came back from captivity? Um, if we go over to Isaiah chapter 8, uh, verse 16, I think we'll get the idea here. Um, Isaiah 8 and verse 16, Isaiah says, Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. And so it's almost as though he, he captured this message, wrote it down, bound it up, and gave it to the disciples. So that when the people came back, they could read it again and be encouraged by it. Um, let's go over to chapter 29. The other one I've got there at the bottom. Chapter 29 and verse 10. Yahweh hath poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep and hath closed your eyes. The prophets and your rulers, the seers, hath he covered. The vision of all his become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed which men deliver to one that is learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he said, I cannot, for it is sealed. And the book is delivered to him that is not learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he said, I am not learned. So there is that, that, that idea, isn't there, of a book that's sealed up and then read out at the appropriate time to those that would understand the, the situation. And maybe it is that that, that component of Isaiah chapter 40 to the end was saved for that returning people to give them a vision of the coming Messiah. Just a thought to help us in our considerations. Okay, so that's a little bit of the overview there for what it's worth and maybe, maybe it will help, maybe it won't, I don't know. Okay, so when we approach prophets, let's just look for some things that might maybe help us a little bit. Um, I've got a, 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 two or three things here. Okay, the first one is absolute language. And we've got an example of this in um, chapter 1 and um, verse 8 and 9. A bit longer than that. Yeah, 8 to 10, sorry. Chapter 1, verse 8 to 10. The daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard, as a lodge in the garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Except Yahweh of armies had left us unto a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom or should have been like unto Gomorrah. So they're likened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 11, sorry, verse 10. Hear the word of Yahweh, ye rulers of Sodom, and give ear unto the law of your God, ye people of Gomorrah. So it's not only likened Israel or Judah and Jerusalem to Sodom and Gomorrah, he's actually started calling them Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay? So we can just need to keep our eyes open and, and our, our minds on what Isaiah is doing there. He's actually saying, not only are you like, you could be like them, you are them. You know, we, we might be inclined to read that and say, oh, he's started talking about Sodom and Gomorrah now. But he's not, he's still talking about Judah and the rulers of Judah. He gives the, in the second quote, doesn't he, Simon, he gives who the, uh, the heavens and the earth are, the rulers mm. of the people. Yeah, mm. yeah, that's right. Okay. I've got on here, look for the warnings. And this is, I think, probably, you know, sometimes we can get bogged down in detail in, in, in these sections, but 
we can see warnings that come up. So let's highlight those, the things that we're told to be alert for, that the people had alerted to them, and, and look for the calls to action that, that are given there. And the example I've got is from this first chapter that we read together. In, in verse 11 to 15, um, we have that God saying, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me? And he is asked, what's this purpose? And it sort of comes out of what we read earlier because the people hadn't had a relationship with God. Verse 3, it said, the ox knows his owner and the ass his master's crib, but Israel doesn't know my people consider, doth not consider. Has anyone got a different version for that? In, yeah, verse, um, verse 3. Yep. Okay. Yep, so that sort of maybe captures it a little bit more. Um, the idea is that the ox and the ass know where their food comes from. They know who looks after them. That's, that's the essence of here. The, the axe knows his owner. The ass is master's crib. He, he knows who looks after him. But Israel don't know. They don't know. They don't think about me. That's, that's really the essence, isn't it? The people don't have that connection with God. Uh, and this is why. That's what motivates God to, to highlight this warning um, that goes from verse 10, sorry, 11 to 15. Because he's saying, well, what's the point of all these sacrifices? What's the point of you coming to all these feasts on new moons? That you're offering incense to me. And when you're doing this, you're spreading your hands and they're covered in blood. There's no purpose to it, is there, if there's no actual connection with God? And so what's the call to action? Wash you. Make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment or justice. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. And isn't that a thread throughout Scripture? Is not, isn't that something that's highlighted everywhere? To consider the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. Their relationship with the people to bring them to God. Come now, let us reason together, saith Yahweh, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And, and that's the, the, the message of hope, isn't it? The, the forgiveness of God, the mercy of God to those that respond to his appeal for them to change their ways. And so I think there's, there's value in that, isn't that? As, as we work through... As we're reading together, look for the warnings, highlight them in one colour. Look for what God is asking of them and highlight that in another colour. And maybe highlight the blessings as well. That they will highlight and stand out for us and maybe give us a better picture of what's going on. Okay. The prophecy is full of messages of judgment and hope. As we said, Isaiah 1 verse 1 um, highlights what he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem and Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 1, as we said, is again what he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem at a different time. So why Judah and Jerusalem? Okay. Well, Judah... In Revelation chapter 5 and verse 4 and 5. And I wept much because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look thereon. And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion that is of the tribe of Judah, 
The root of David hath overcome to open the book and the seven seals thereof. And so Judah, yes, is, a, is a, speaking of the nation, the southern part of the nation, uh, and, is, and Jerusalem was its capital at that point in time of the prophecy of Isaiah. But, but Judah also talks about that tribe that pointed forward to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's captured, isn't it, by um, John in Revelation chapter 5. And Jerusalem, once again, transports our mind, doesn't it, to that time when the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And so I think that clearly when Isaiah draws our attention to Judah and Jerusalem, it's not just a geographic exercise of identifying a particular part of the nation and the city at the time, but is giving us a picture of what God's message is throughout the word of God from beginning to end through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and Jerusalem being that wonderful um, centre of the kingdom of God. Another little thing is to as we're reading through, to maybe be alert for some of the symbols that, that are used. And some of, some of it can be a little obscure. Um, but we read tonight in chapter 1 and verse um, 29 to 31 about Jerusalem um, and, and Judah. And it said there, For they shall be ashamed of the oaks which ye have desired. Okay, so it's like they, they desire the oak trees around. Ye shall be confounded for the gardens that ye have chosen. For ye shall be as an oak whose leaf fadeth and as a garden that hath no water. And the strong shall be as tow, tow and the maker of it as a spark and they shall both burn together and none shall quench them. So... so Judah is like an oak, described like an oak here, okay, uh, that almost is, is fading away. In chapter 6, um, in verse 13, this is, we'll just look at this again in a moment, but in verse 13, and yet in it, sorry, we'll go for verse 12, Yahweh hath removed men far away, and therefore there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. A forsaking in the midst of the land. But yet in it shall be a tenth, a, a, just a small portion. And it shall return and shall be eaten as a teal tree and as an oak whose substance is in them. Well, if you look in your margin, the word substance means stock or stem. Um, some versions have a stump. Okay, so we have this little picture here, don't we, that, that um, in chapter 1, they are an oak. Here, in, the chapter, in chapter 6 and verse 13, there's this land, and in it is left this stump of an oak tree. And then, in chapter 11... There shall come forth a rod, a rod out of the stem, or in some versions it says a stump, of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And who's that talking about? Yeah, Micah, you're going to say. Hmm? Jesus, yep, yeah, absolutely. Well done. Yeah, okay, that's a prophecy, isn't it, of Jesus who was of the seed of David, whose father was Jesse. Okay, so, so we've got this little vision there, haven't we, of, of the oak that becomes a stump, and then out of this stump we've got this branch growing, the work of the, the Lord Jesus Christ. So be alert to these little pictures that, that Isaiah um, conveys through words. Okay. Um, 
I think it's also helpful as, as we're reading to be alert to words that are repeated. There are themes that, that run through Isaiah. What does Isaiah's name mean? Sorry? Salvation is of Yah? Yeah, all right. So what do you think one of the words that might be that's a theme through the prophecy of Isaiah? The word salvation. Yeah, have a look for that. All right? Mentioned fairly frequently. All right, so I would suggest, yeah, maybe colour in some of these words, highlight them. Um, Another word that occurs quite frequently um, in chapter 1, we read it, it was on three occasions, and that's the word righteousness in verse 21 to 27. How is the faithful city become unhallowed? It was full of judgment. Righteousness lodged in it. But now, murderers, thy silver has become dross, thy wine mixed with water, and so on. Verse 24, therefore, saith the Lord, Yahweh of armies, mighty one of Israel, I will ease me of mine adversaries and avenge me of mine enemies, and I will turn my hand upon thee and purely purge away thy dross, take away all thy tin, and I will restore thy judges as at the first, thy counsellors at the beginning, Afterward, thou shalt be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Verse 27, Zion shall be redeemed with judgment and her converts with righteousness. So righteousness, it's three times there and it occurs continuously through the prophecy of Isaiah. But I think finally this evening, because our time has gone, it's time to enjoy some refreshments and to maybe think about things. Um, Just with that quote, because I think as we looked at the family of Isaiah, and I think this quote really captures, in a sense, the the overall embracing theme of um, Isaiah and his motivation Uh, and and um, and the hope that is presented there, and and you can see the way that that works if we just go to Isaiah chapter six, just in conclusion. In Isaiah chapter six, we can see that that Isaiah was somewhat confronted by the things that were being conveyed to him that he had to convey to the people. Uh, and he's in this circumstance that King Uzziah, the first of the kings, had died. And um, he was a king that died and he was, um, I think, the one that um, went into the temple and took hold of the, the altar. Okay, and he died in that circumstance of... Um, uh, what's the word? Um, it's gone from me. Yeah, usurping the priest office. So, yeah, so it was corrupt, corrupting the, the, the principles around the temple. That's the, the idea here. Okay, so we have this king who is in that circumstance. And yet we have then Isaiah presented with a, a beautiful vision. And that vision of the, the um, seraphim, uh, which is, in a sense, the glorified Lord Jesus Christ in his temple. Okay, so it's given this beautiful picture. This king has gone. Isaiah's weighed down a little bit with this message of, that he has to deliver to the people and he's given this beautiful vision, the only vision that Isaiah is given of the glorified Lord Jesus Christ. And we see in verse 5, Isaiah's response to this. Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of armies. He's seen God in the form of the glorified Christ. That's the picture that he had been blessed with there. And that was his response. He was overwhelmed with it. 
And then, at that point in time, verse 6, then flew one of the seraphim to me, having a coal in his hand. And he touched my lips, knowing that Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips. And he took a coal and touched his lips. Thine iniquity is taken away. Thy sins are purged. And then a voice goes to Isaiah in verse 8. Who shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah, encouraged by this vision, encouraged by this interaction that he has had, doesn't shrink back and say, I'm not worthy anymore. He doesn't say, I'm a man of sin, of unclean lips. Here am I, send me. He's reinvigorated with the, the message of hope. And it's beautiful the way that, that God works with his prophets in that way. And we see that in other prophets as well, working with his people to encourage them and and throughout the prophecy of Isaiah, we see that with the people themselves. Yes, judgments are given. Beautiful messages of hope are given as well. So thank you for your time this evening. And hopefully it's been of some help. And we look forward to looking at some of the themes from the prophecy of Isaiah together.